0: I'm warning you for the last time. (laughs) You've heard that a lot. You've probably said it a lot. To your kids. Maybe your friends. Jesus says the same thing in so many words. Right here in our reading today from Luke. He warns people for the last time before he dies that the kingdom of God is near. He does this in three Stages by foretelling the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the entire city of Jerusalem, and the whole world. So, in this, when your verses start here with the widow who puts the copper coin in the offering box, and then later when Jesus is talking to people, this is where they are in the temple in Jerusalem, in the courtyard, probably. You can't really go inside these walls. There's really nothing in there. You dare not go into the center part here. That's where the Holy of Holies is. That's where God dwells. Only the high priest is allowed in there. So Jesus is probably somewhere in the courtyard over here. This structure here is shaded so that the people can do several things like bring offerings and things like that. Look at the size of this thing. All right, See these little houses on the left here? This is a model in Jerusalem, but it's to scale. These little houses right there, look at the tiny little doorways compared to the temple courtyard. I mean, people are like ants in there. It's massive. This is where this scene takes place. This conversation about destruction seems to come out of nowhere in this place, when someone says to Jesus, look at these beautiful stones and these wonderful candles people have placed all over as an offering. I don't really know if they were candles or not. In the Greek, the word is votive. So it's something that the people purchased, that the people would purchase and then bring into the courtyard there and adorn the temple with this with this stuff. So one gets the impression that even though you can't see the detail, if it's not detailed in this model, one gets the impression that during the time of Jesus, by the time of Jesus, the inside of the courtyard's probably got a lot of stuff in it. People buy things in the shops just right outside the temple to bring in as an offering to God. So gems, some kind of little knickknack, a stone, a candle maybe, whatever, a little lamp of oil, whatever the case is, Someone that's there with Jesus, whether it's one of the disciples or just one of the people in the the temple there, says, look at these beautiful stones and these wonderful votives people have brought as an offering. To which Jesus replies, oh yeah, you see all this nice stuff here? It'll all be pulled down one day. What what a Debbie Downer kind of thing to say, isn't it? (laughs) You know, you, you would maybe we would expect Jesus to say, oh yes, isn't it grand? Look at what Herod had built, has built on the top of all those who have come come before us, right? But no, it's kind of like a wah, 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 you know, <laughs> oh, isn't this wonderful? No, no, it's just all gonna be destroyed one day. But he's got a reason for saying this. And not only that, but he he means it literally and figuratively. Look at the stonework of this temple. It is magnificent. Let's just give a little, let me just tell you about this place, right? I, I, I know that when Jill and I came back from Israel, I gave you the whole rundown on the temple, but, you know, in case you weren't there or forgotten in the last two years, it, it, is, it is quite magnificent, but it doesn't look anything like this today, because as Jesus said, not a stone would, would remain, and that, that did happen in 70, the year 70, and I'll get to that in a minute, but... In its heyday, this is what it looked like. This is what the temple looked like in the days of Jesus. This is where he went when he was a boy with his parents every year to bring an offering. And so it was in pristine condition, right? Let's go back a thousand years before this though. David's son Solomon builds the first temple on the hilltop where the old city Jerusalem started on kind of the corner of the hill anyways. Uh, Solomon builds the first temple. It's much smaller than this one. And it gets destroyed. So we're not going to get into all that. But in 20, 30 years before Jesus was born, Herod the Great, who was king of Israel, but he wasn't really an Israelite. He was half Jewish, half Edomite. And the Jews hated him anyways. But he was in bed with the Romans. So he got a lot of money to do things. And he built these grand construction projects all over Israel, all for his benefit, not the people's. And he said, I'm going to rebuild the temple and make it grand, and he did that. And look at it, it is quite marvelous. Now here's the thing about the temple in Jerusalem, it's not something that God had asked anyone to build for him. But David's son Solomon said, why are we worshiping God in tents? We need to make something permanent, something grand. And they did that. And when you read the Old Testament, you know there are times when you see that when the people of Israel did something that God didn't ask them to do, he would like fry them right on the spot. Like, poof! No, I didn't ask you to do that. I told you to do something else. You didn't obey me, right? Well, he doesn't seem to have argued with the temple that Solomon built or the one that Herod built on top of Solomon's, right? Uh, he seems to have put up with that and the people did believe that he dwelt in that, that top part there, the central top part, the Holy of Holies. There was an f- eternal flame burning in there. That was God, right? Even though you may be asking, well, isn't God everywhere? Doesn't he exist? Yes, he does. But he also dwelt with his people in the temple. So there you have it, right? And the stonework was magnificent. Although Herod took a shortcut... All the stones on the outside are nice and smooth and perfectly aligned, but on the inside, nah, it's all rough and out of line. It was a shortcut, save money, save time, but on the outside, looks, looks magnificent. Well, when Jesus says that every stone is going to be toppled, he means it. That would happen in the year 70, after Jesus' death, and also after Paul and the other apostles had been killed and only one remained, and that was John, okay? this place would, would be toppled by the Roman Empire. Emperor Nero in Rome got tired of the Jewish ro- uh, insurrections and um, uh, rebellions, and he decided to put a stop to it finally, and he sent a, 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 a huge army into Jerusalem and uh, sacked the place. And everything from the top here all the way down to the base, that's the base of the temple, the Romans knocked down. These stones were not glued together uh, with tar or cement. They were just stacked upon each other. They were so heavy, they didn't need to be glued. But they could be toppled. The Romans had large crowbars and tackle, and they toppled each stone over the side. Uh, It took months, right? Uh, but some of them you can still see, right? These stones have been laying there since August 7th, 70. Not touched since then. Most of the other rubble was carted off later days and also used to uh, rebuild the city by other rulers that would come long after that. But I'm not going to get into all that. What's important is that what Jesus says is going to happen, happened. And when the Romans got down to the base of the temple, Uh, they said, okay, that's enough. We're not going to try and disassemble this base. We've done enough. So that's the temple. Okay, It took months to destroy it, and um, those stones are still there. In a sense, the temple is rendered obsolete anyways by Jesus' arrival on earth. He assumes everything that the temple means, what it stands for, and its purpose. He assumes all that into Himself. He is the sacrifice now. The people won't worship God in the temple anymore. They'll worship Him and He will live in them. The people will become temples for the Holy Spirit. That's what you and I are today. So when Jesus talks about the stones being pulled down He's also talking about Himself. He will be pulled down from the cross and buried, destroyed by the Gentiles, the Romans. But the people want to know when all this is going to happen. How will we know this is about to happen? Well, you'll notice in the reading that Jesus does not teach the disciples how to predict the future. The main thing is they are to know that when Jesus is crucified, that's the beginning of the end. That's when it starts. And after that happens... The animal sacrifices on the temple steps, the adornment of the temple with stones and votives and all that stuff, forgiveness of sin for the people will no longer come through that old temple way. When Jesus dies on the cross, God's grace to sinful people now comes through what He institutes through the church. The Word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. He also prepares us for our last day, whether that comes when we die or when He returns and we're still breathing. But let's move on to the wider destruction now of Jerusalem. The destruction of this city in the summer of 70 cannot be underestimated by any of us Christians. I know there are more important things on your mind right now than Jerusalem. The country is a mess, the economy is a mess. The schools are a mess. Health care is a mess. Your life may be a mess. Or someone close to you is a mess. I get it. What does God have to say about those things? Well, He says there's sin in the world. That's why we have these problems. But don't panic. Don't despair. There are signs that the end is near, and that's a good thing. But it won't come all at once. See, in this reading, God is saying to you and me, I've given you, there's a a sign that the end is near. Jerusalem will be toppled, and it's happened. There's your sign. And all the wars and famines and earthquakes that will come are signs. Don't panic. And certainly, don't be misled by others claiming to be me, or claiming to have another solution to the world's problems. Now let's look at the city for a moment. This is what it looked like in Jesus' time. It grew from a little, it grew from a little city of David, somewhere, oh, I think it's this corner here, David's city. And it grew uh, and grew, and then the temple was built by Solomon, and then later by Herod. And this is Herod's temple, right? This is the time of Jesus. You see these towers here? That's the citadel. Herod built a fortress right next to the temple to protect his home, which was, you know, right back in here somewhere. Because invading armies would be coming from this direction, and so he made sure that there was, a, there was towers that soldiers could shoot arrows, and flaming arrows and stuff, and repel any invading armies. Well, when the Romans toppled this city, they left those towers, they left the citadel intact as a, as a, a tribute to what the city used to be. But those towers got knocked down in later wars. So when you go visit Jerusalem today, there's very little sign of those towers, just kind of the bases of them. They've been cut off too. And there's different walls around the city and inside the city that have been built during certain times. But all of that got knocked down by the Romans too. They, best, they basically leveled the place. And when Jesus says that people will flee to the mountains, yeah, he wasn't kidding. They did, but a lot got trapped inside the city and were killed. There was a lot of wood in the city. The houses were built with wooden beams inside, and the Romans set all that on fire. And I read that the fire was so hot and lasted so long that it actually melted some of the limestone. Some of it turned to glass. And people were caught in there and burned and whatnot. There's a saying, Jerusalem in my heart, well, whatever city is in your heart, Portland, I can't imagine anyone's, <laughs> I mean, whatever, maybe it used to be, I don't know, whatever city, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, whatever, whatever city is in your heart will be toppled. Jerusalem's destruction is but a foretelling of what's coming to the whole world. But there's one more part to Luke's framework here in this reading, and that is, Jesus' prediction of his death. That it's a testimony to the world that a new creation is breaking forth and that the beginning of the end has arrived in him. The hatred Christians will receive by Romans then and any time and place, including now and in the future, is an opportunity for us to witness to the world the testimony of Jesus Christ. That he has come to bring forgiveness of sin and life forever. It's good news, but this has resulted in death for some. He also encourages us to remain steadfast and endure, to remain faithful in the midst of persecution, because that's a way of showing the world that even though I suffer and die at your hands, I will live forever. Now, to finish this scene out, there's also the destruction of the whole world that Jesus talks about. The, shakings, the shaking of the heavens and all that. That's how, that's how he describes it. That's what he wants you to picture. He's giving us the impression that there'll be wars and insurrections and all this stuff, and the end won't happen right away. But then when it does, it's like the earth and the heavens will be shaken. What a picture! It's hard to even imagine. This isn't the first thing you want to hit your friends with or neighbors with when you're talking about Jesus and Christianity. I mean, unless, of course, you're speaking with someone who has the popular idea that we will be the cause of the end of the earth with our greenhouse gases and oceans full of plastic and so forth. Those things are but part of sin, part of the sin of humanity in which Jesus came to pay for with his life and redeem and make new again. So in a way, the destruction of this decaying world and the making of a new one, it could be a good talking point uh, in witnessing to the world. You know, I don't, want, I don't know what it was like for other denominations like Presbyterians or Catholics or Methodists, whatever, in, in the, the 20th century, when it came to, you know, seeking and, and evangelizing the lost. But I can tell you in Lutheran circles, Uh, The literature that you read from like the 1930s and 40s and 50s, it's all based on the assumption that, you know, when you're talking with someone and you're witnessing about Jesus to them, the assumption is that other person is dealing with crushing guilt over their sin. Now, if you're talking to someone today about Jesus, do you think that that's what you can assume that you're person you're talking to is, that's what they have on their mind? Crushing guilt over their sin? Ah, no, I mean if anything they're going to think they're a good person and they're, they don't sin, right? Now things have changed. So what I'm saying is that you know, maybe this could maybe the destruction of the world, maybe that is a, a good talking point because that is certainly what's on people's mind with the with the, uh, I don't know, the state of things today, with the environment and all that. And it is a comforting thing to know that we're not going to be the solution. You know, we can can do what we can to be good stewards of the earth, but we're not going to be its destruction, and we're not going to be its savior as well. That task is uh, left up to Jesus Christ. And whether you and I are standing in the courtyard of the temple with Jesus or hearing him now, Through his word, we are standing in the presence of the Son of God and the Son of Man. This is the goal of his teaching. That we are not to fear the end, but stand straight with our heads held up high and greet the Son of God who comes to take us to the new Jerusalem, the new earth in the new heavens. And that's good news, my friends. You might be wondering, you know, why do we talk about Jerusalem? Well, because when you read the Bible... You run into it, you yeah, it's there, and we have to deal with it. Jesus is in there. He talks about Jerusalem. It has meaning. It shows us our future and our promise of eternal life. He foretells Jerusalem's destruction, pointing ahead to the judgment of the whole world, and this we cannot ignore. But we can face it unafraid because Jesus has already borne God's vengeance for our sakes and for His sake takes away the cause of judgment, our sin. So, Lord, let us ever keep watchful of the end and with repentant hearts be ready for your return from heaven. Amen.